Take your Bibles, if you will, and open with me to Joshua chapter 22, and you follow as I read a a healthy portion, but not all of uh, the chapter. We'll begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6, and then we'll pick up at verse 10. So we're in Joshua 22, and by the way, uh, before we start reading, I, I, I want you to know that I have, you may have noticed that I'm skipping chapter 21. Um... I have a reason for so doing. Uh, guys, chapter 21, the theme of chapter 21, I for one am really glad it's in the Bible, but um, the theme of chapter 21 is the professional clergy and how they are to be paid. So I thought you might think it a bit self-serving of me to preach such a thing. So just know that in your in your idle hours this week, Go back and read Joshua 21. It'll, I like it. Um, so let's begin at 22, verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this, down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, at verse 10, go to verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, the land in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, And with him, ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. Every one of them, the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin of Pe- uh, sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel 
against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and then said to the, said and answered the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from the, from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us, or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest... And the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, the story that I just read you out of Joshua 22 is a real defining moment in the in the history of this little fledgling nation known as Israel. It's really the sequel. It's it's really a continuation of a story that began way back in Numbers 32. Now, I know you don't remember that story in Numbers 32, so let me remind you of what took place in Numbers 32. Guys, when when Israel came up out of Egypt, Remember the plagues on Pharaoh and the dividing of the Red Sea? When they came up out of Egypt, Egypt, their, their route was somewhat securitous, securitous, it's the microphone. Um, but as they headed north, they came up on the east side of the River Jordan. Okay? Try to get your geography. It goes, the River Jordan goes north and south. They came up on the east side of that. While they were traveling north, Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, <clears throat> we like this land. This looks like it's uh, what we were really looking for. We, we, would, we would like to keep this. Could we just have our inheritance on this side of the Jordan? Moses goes to God. God says, that's fine. They go back and says, okay, yeah, you can have that. But there's one stipulation. The stipulation is... Um, we gotta go fight a whole lot of enemies when we cross the Jordan into the promised land. 
And you got to fight them with us. So you got to stay with us until all of those enemies are, are defeated. Deal? Deal. So, the war's over. All of those battles are completed. The enemies are defeated. And it's time for, um, for Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh to go home. You notice, I hope, in the text that it was, um, it was at, uh, Joshua's initiation. They weren't whining and complaining about when we're going to be able to go home. No, it was Joshua come, came to them and said, okay, it's time to go home. So you can go back. Go back where? Well, you can go back across the Jordan where your inheritance lies. You have kept your commitments to Moses and to me, says Joshua. And so now it's time you can go home. That's what this is about, guys. Now, let me, let me say something before I, I go too far. Um, guys, the, the theme of Joshua chapter 22 is the pervasive demand on Israel for fidelity to Yahweh. That's what this chapter is about. I see that. I realize that. And what I'm about to do with this text borders on moralizing the text, which you should never do. I'm not importing anything into the text. I am gonna, I'm gonna do something with this text, which is not the major theme of the text. I'm simply pointing out that the major theme has to do with fidelity to Yahweh. That's what's here. But I want to draw your attention to something that's in the text. And it really has to do with some local and specific concerns that I'll explain before we're finished. So you'll understand why I, at least I hope you will, why I do what I do with this text. But know this, the issue has to do with I mean, the theme of the chapter is indeed the demand on God's people to be faithful to Yahweh. All right? You got all that? So, the battles are over, the wars are done, and so two and a half tribes can now go back to their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan. Um, that, that, that time of peace has finally come, and so Joshua sends them back with his blessing laden with the spoils of war, and the only piece of instruction that he has for them has nothing to do with agriculture, it has nothing to do with farming or national defense. The only piece of instruction that he has for them is in verse 6 when he says, remember, you must maintain devotion to Yahweh, to serve him, to obey him, to keep his commandments. The only piece of instruction that that Joshua has, has to do with the maintenance of their spiritual lives. But no sooner had they gotten out of sight than a major problem develops. They build an altar. That's a no-no. And at that point, 
something very contemporary begins to happen in this text. Rumors. Rumors begin to fly. Motives. Motives are assigned to a deed that was done by those two and a half tribes. And um, all they have back in on the other side of the Jordan is a report of an act. But they were quick to assign motives to that act. Guys, um, nobody in this room can claim to be not guilty when it comes to the spreading of rumors. Now, now let me pause um, right here and say the the problem uh, that you see here in Joshua 22, uh, the, the problem that you see in Israel is very much like a problem that exists in the 21st century Christian church. The problem is a deficiency in love. Guys, when you leap to conclusions about my bad motives concerning a bad act that I may have done, then um, then we are deficient in love. Because you may not know this, but 1 Corinthians 13, that, that chapter on love, says that love thinketh no evil. Not only that, guys, I I hate to tell you this, but you can't read my motives. And when you try to read my motives, or I try to read yours, we are both guilty of something that the whole world knows is in the Bible. It's a text in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Everybody knows it. In fact, the non-Christian world knows two verses in the Bible. They know, wives submit... And they know, judge not, lest ye be judged. And when you try to assign motives to something that I did that was bad. By the way, guys, there's nothing that I've done. It's not that you're doing. I'm just giving you hypotheticals. If you try to assign motives to a bad act that you saw me do, you are guilty. You're guilty of violating Matthew 7, 1, and we are guilty as a part of the people of God of a deficiency in love. Let me give you an example just to hopefully make it clear. Let's say that your neighbor has an affair. And you call that adultery because that's what it is. And at that point, you, you are not guilty over anything. You have simply assigned a biblical definition to an act that you saw. But once you then go from there to assign motives to the act, then you're in trouble. Uh, You committed adultery, and I know why. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because you cannot read the heart of the offender. 
And see, that's what's going on here in Joshua 22. They hear of something that happened. They built an altar. Whoa. Well, they're going to, they're going to start worshiping idols. I know why they built that altar. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just demon worshipers. <coughs> they don't know that. All they know is that something has happened that uh, is not good in, in their eyes. And so they hasten to assign motives to the perpetrator of the offense. You know, guys, if I were to ask you to list the five most hurtful things in your past, make a list of five things that are the most hurtful things in your past, I wonder how many of us would include on our list An occasion when people assigned evil motives to me or you. What I did was bad enough, but now it's made far worse because of the reasons that I did it. I did what I did, according to you, because I'm evil. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a deficiency in love. Look at verse 12, because it is full of pathos. And when the people of Israel heard of it, building of the altar, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Do you see what they did? They, they heard that an altar had been built. And they immediately raced to the conclusion, oh, I know why they built that. And they gather to go kill a few people. And, and, um, these are good friends. I mean, people who recently had fought side by side, all of those uh, enemies that over there, those people are on the brink of war. Because of a rumor, a rumor which, by the way, turned out to be false. It wasn't that they had the act reported to them wrongly. It was the motive that they assigned to the act that led (coughs) to the brink of war. They all agree in this story, that if idolatry has been committed, then it needs to be punished. But aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that somebody had the sense enough to check out the facts before blood got spilled? You know, I'm not so sure that the 21st century evangelical church would handle it that well. In fact, which really brings me to my uh, my motive for doing this text, doing what I'm doing with this text. Do you remember three or four years ago? I forget how long ago. I, I would say four years, I'm guessing. That there were two sister churches in our community who were going through terrible times. 
And in response to those terrible times, two websites were created. Save.com. And posted on those websites, of course, were the most salacious suggestions about why people were doing what they were doing so that countless thousands could could relish each each juicy little morsel that was um, that was flying about. I went on the website once and I found I went on more than once, but um, on one occasion I was on the web one of the websites and I saw that a man from Okinawa <laughs> had weighed into the discussion of problems that existed in churches in Germantown. What does he have to do with it? Oh, let's just spill a little blood. We don't need to worry about the facts. Let's just tear into a few people. What do you say? Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Hey, guys, um, did you know that Abraham Lincoln's coffin was pried open, not once, but twice. Did you know that? (laughs) The first one occurred in 1887, which was 21 years after the assassination. And you may be surprised to know that the reason it was pried open was not because they were wondering whether the bullet from John Wilkes Booth's derringer had killed Abraham Lincoln. Well, if that wasn't the reason they pried it, why, why did they pry it open then? Well, because... A rumor. A rumor was sweeping the country that his coffin was empty. And so they gathered this select uh, uh, group of witnesses and they exhumed him, opened his coffin, and sure enough, he was in there. And so they closed it back and sealed it with lead. Fourteen years later, in 1901, it was exhumed again at the opposition and the the pleas to not do so from his son, Robert. And you know why? The same reason. This rumor had once again fueled speculation. And so it, his body was, the, the coffin was, wherever it was, was, and they got a bigger group the second time. And this poor, martyred, withered body got looked at again. <coughs> because... Because of some rumors. How stupid is that? Well, I would even, I would say, more than stupid, it's cruel. But guys, rumors are like that. They, they're lacking any kind of authoritative direct source. And information is disseminated, creating Difficulty and turmoil and, and, and harm in many cases. And it is pandered about by busybodies 
who, who I guess enjoy catering to the, to the sick appetites of, of some petty people. Um, you know, it, it seems that there are those who love to, to traffic in back alleys where the light is dim and, um, love to talk about the ubiquitous they say or have you heard or it's been reported to me. <laughs> I mean, have you heard that XYZ church is about to split? I mean, did you, uh, did you hear about Flossie and Billy Joe? Why they're about to divorce because I, what I heard was Flossie was, uh, unfaithful. Um, did you hear about Pastor Loudmouth? He's about to get, uh, run out of his church. Did you hear about that? Um, what I was, what I heard was his son's on drugs. They caught him choplifting. You better watch out for him. The only way he knows how to succeed is by cheating. You know, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in Shakespeare, nor am I really much of a fan of Shakespeare's, because I can't understand him, but this is a, just a couple of sentences out of King Henry IV that I could understand. I'll read you this. Rumor is a pipe blown by surmises, jealousies, and conjectures, and of so easy and so plain a stop that the blunt monster with uncounted heads, the still discordant wavering multitude can play upon it. <laughs> and oh, how some Christians can play on that pipe. Those sour melodies that, that get sprinkled into our phone conversations and um, into... Those fellowship times. Aren't you glad somebody checked out the facts before anybody got killed? I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the tongue of many of us can pry open more caskets and can um, stir up more choking, scandalous dust than about just about any other tool on earth. Guys, with, with all that in view, I, I just want to pass on some suggestions. When, when Susie and I first became Christians years ago, I heard a sermon like this from D. James Kennedy, and he talked about garbage trucks backing up into front into somebody's lawn and just, you know, dumping the garbage in the in the front lawn. 
I never will forget that. That image of, you know, and just dumping garbage all over. And that's what he likened it to. And then he, um, he suggested four remedies. I want to pass those on. He said, ask to identify, ask the person speaking to identify sources by name. If, if they're so determined to pass on information like that, then request that the source be identified by name. Secondly, ask for facts. You don't need to accept any hearsay, just truth is something that we all want. Rumors tend to fade under the scrutinizing light of truth. Third, this is a good one. Ask the rumor monger, can I quote you? Um, it's amazing how quickly um, people can backpedal with a, can I quote you? And then you might want to say something like, I, I really don't appreciate you telling me all this. Now that may cause a little <laughs> difficulty in that relationship. But ladies and gentlemen, aren't you glad somebody looked for the facts before they started spilling blood? Don't you wish that we could have had some facts instead of a website? Don't you wish? I, I do. I... I, I I don't know how you justify to yourself creating a website so that I don't know how, I don't know who did it. I, I, you know, but I'm telling you, I ache for the two churches that were having to have all of what was going on spilled onto a website so that people over in Okinawa can enjoy it. Guys, look back with me at the story at the at the text. Look at verse 22. Um, this is, these are the spokesmen of the two and a half tribes. And they say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. What a statement. If we're guilty of that, then for heaven's sakes, we need to die. But I don't know whether you understood as I was reading it, but they explained themselves. They said, that's not what we intended. That was not our motive. Our motive was that in case years from now, all of us are dead, and the people on that side of the Jordan say, oh, those people on that side of the Jordan, they don't have anything to do with us. We wanted something concrete in place that says, yes, they still are a part of Israel. That was our motive. But if we are guilty of idolatry, we... we we deserve to die. But then the, the people who were investigating said, Oh, is that what y'all were doing? Okay. Aren't you glad that they did that instead of saying, You know what I heard? You know, guys, 
There ain't a non-guilty one in the house. None of us are. It just, it's just, it just, it's such an unseemly part of those who belong to this Jesus of ours. The ending of the story is, is a, is a super happy ending. Um, we all love stories like that, don't we? I mean, when the, when they all end like this, they were all zealous to defend God's holiness and truth was sought and found and the whole situation was diffused. You know, you can't have unity where truth is sacrificed. In, in, instead of it being an expression of infidelity, it was really an expression of our desire to prevent infidelity. But it all turned by eliminating a rumor and establishing the truth. And all these people agree that idolatry cannot be tolerated, which is not particularly true in the 21st century church. I mean, we, we tolerate a good deal of it. But today, I think we, we feel like we ought to be nice or people will um, not like us. Their concern was that Yahweh be faithfully served and honored. Let me give you one final note and I'll shut up. But look at verse 34. I didn't read verse 34. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, that altar is a witness between us that the Lord is God. That altar was intended as a witness to future generations that Yahweh was to be faithfully served. If you read on in your Old Testaments, you find out as early as 1 Chronicles 5 that the generations that came after these people despised that testimony and they plunged headlong into idolatry. What is going to keep us from moving away from holy, devoted living to the place where we um, are guilty of things that we would have never imagined? Ladies and gentlemen, I would say to you that apart from the sovereign grace and the power of God, our best efforts are going to be meaningless. I want to read you just a little quote, quick quote from a, she's a state appointed psychiatrist and she was speaking to a volunteer for prison fellowship. And she said this, I can cure somebody's madness, but I can't do anything about his badness. I can turn a schizophrenic bank robber into a mentally healthy bank robber. A good teacher can turn an illiterate criminal into an educated criminal. But there's still bank robbers and criminals. So what will change us? Grace. Sovereign grace. When God the Holy Spirit 
exchanges a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And as soon as that's done, Jesus Christ becomes altogether lovely in my eyes. My sin becomes heinous and I long for this God-provided Savior. And my whole value system gets turned upside down. How does that happen? Grace. Sovereign grace. Our Father, I do pray that you remind your people of the the great necessity of truth and fidelity. That all of us will find ourselves um, called up short as we recognize how guilty we have been of the very thing that we find in Joshua 22. Lord, Joshua 22 is just one reason why we need a Savior. We don't need just a Savior. We need your Savior. The one that you provided. And so with glad and open and willing hearts, we embrace Jesus Christ all over again. Knowing that the only solution and remedy to sin is Christ and him crucified. We make our prayer, of course. In Jesus' name.